1: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. In June of 2018, NBC News and MSNBC correspondent Jacob Soboroff became one of the first journalists allowed entry into Casa Padre, a Texas facility holding more than 1,400 migrant boys who'd been separated from their parents at the U.S.-Mexico border. His experience formed the basis of his new book, Separated, Inside an American Tragedy, which documents the administration's plans for separation from early 2017. We'll also talk with Soboroff about how the pandemic reveals the administration has never really abandoned the separation policy. Join us on Forum after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The head of the American Academy of Pediatrics called it government-sanctioned child abuse, and Physicians for Human Rights called it torture, the systematic taking of children, including babies, from their migrant parents at the southern border. In his new book, Jacob Soboroff, a correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC, recounts his horror as he saw the Trump administration's family separation policy play out before his eyes. He also shares critical details about how the decision to implement the policy was made. The book is Separated, Inside an American Tragedy. Jacob Soboroff, welcome to Forum.
0: So good to be here, Mina. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, thank you. And thank you for this book. I mean, it is packed with internal memos, emails from administration officials that really fill a lot of gaps in understanding how the policy came to be and how it was carried out. I did, though, want to start by asking you about present day, just how families coming to the border now during the pandemic are being treated. Can you update us?
0: Well, the short version of it is asylum, as we knew it, is virtually non-existent. And that is because under the cover of the coronavirus, the Trump administration uh, has essentially ended the asylum system uh, summarily expelling migrants and unaccompanied children who come to the border uh, under the cover of public health law. And that's despite the fact that many of those who they are expelling uh, test negative, uh, according to reporting from ProPublica Lomi Creel. and daryl lind uh, for the coronavirus uh, and that is just sort of pattern in practice of what we've seen from the trump administration using one excuse to justify harsh immigration policies that ultimately doesn't turn out to be the case at all
1: so literally children who come unaccompanied are being immediately expelled and sent and deported uh this is definitely a departure from previous practice as you say there is a lawsuit that's been filed do you know if that's doing anything to slow this down
0: Well, the ACLU, which ultimately uh, won the end of the family separation policy and forced the reunification of the thousands of children, which I'm sure we'll talk about and is still ongoing, has filed now finally a class action lawsuit to stop this practice. They were sort of going at it piecemeal, and I'm sure your listeners have seen the footage either online or on television of children who have been detained inside hotels and motels uh, in South Texas. But also today, Caitlin Dickerson and the New York Times reports all across the country um, in this way that has never been done before. And that is essentially to get around uh, the current and uh, historical uh, system of immigration of how these children are supposed to be detained and cared for and given safeguards and protections from abuses within the system. And that that's not happening, which is why now you're seeing the ACLU, uh, go at this as a class action suit and not just on an individualized basis.
1: And how about migrant parents who are currently detained at the border with their kids? What are they being presented with in terms of options?
0: Well, and I say this you know, as objectively as I can. It is a mess. And that is because you have hundreds of children and parents detained in ICE family detention where coronavirus is. Uh, you know, not only exists, but is rapidly expanding like it is uh, in other places across the countries, particularly with cohort type um, living. And Judge Dolly G here in Southern California, the federal judge, ordered the release of the children on July 17th, uh, almost a month ago. And those children have not yet been released. They're being detained still with their parents inside ICE detention. When ICE has the discretion, uh, they have historically done uh, this exact thing, which is release them together with their parents so that they can be detained uh, excuse me, they can be together with their parents outside of ICE detention, uh, awaiting their immigration cases and the adjudication of those cases. But the Trump administration has decided not to do that, forcing this you know, sort of court showdown, as um, lawyers will tell you, you know, life literally hangs in the bounds for so many of these parents and kids in detention.
1: So they're basically saying stay in detention where the risk of the coronavirus is real. If you want to stay with your kids or release just your kids.
0: That's right. And this is what's called binary choice family separation. Stephen Miller, uh, the minute the family separation policy ended, uh, had um, was emailing about this. It's basically a backup plan, was a backup plan for the Trump administration to force parents to make the choice to either self-separate from their children uh, or be detained indefinitely with them. And all of this, all that we're talking about, and you'll see it in the book, is part of the underlying immigration philosophy that the Trump administration Um, wanted to enact all along during family separations and even before family separations. And that is to be able to kick out unaccompanied migrant children from this country immediately when they get here uh, and also to detain parents and children together indefinitely, uh, both um, sort of uh, the next step in the deterrence-based immigration system we've had here in the United States uh, for decades, for, for over 30 years, and that's under Democratic and Republican administrations.
1: So to be able to detain them indefinitely, and of course, that's what the judge, Jolly G, you're talking about, the California judge is saying is so harmful to kids, but yet uh, how many parents have, have decided to, to separate from their child? Zero. Zero, zero have.
0: And, and why would they? Right. I mean, we know at this point you read in the introduction, you mentioned in the introduction that we know now that family separation, whether forcibly by the government or by choice of a parent for whatever reason, um, results in lifelong trauma, medically speaking, for these children. It's why Physicians for Human Rights called what the Trump administration did, a systematic campaign of separation, uh, torture. They said it meets the United Nations definition of torture. American Academy of Pediatrics said it was government-sanctioned child abuse. And while the Trump administration may not now explicitly um, be making that decision for these parents— Uh, They are putting them in a situation, any of their lawyers will tell you this, uh, that is forcing them to make that decision, which is an incredibly extraordinarily traumatic one, one that will have lifelong consequences for the kids. And that's that's according to government officials that I spoke to for the book that told me about this during family separations.
1: Yes, I mean, and why would they really is. The key question, if they know anything about how the administration handled family separations before, why would they trust them? And one of the things that is so clear in your book and and what your book really outlines using these, you know, in some cases, first time seen internal conversations and memos is just how horrifically this plan was conceived and carried out, including with absolutely no real plan for reunifying the kids once they were taken from their parents. Can you just um, step back for us a moment and just remind us how many kids were separated under this policy that, as you show, began being discussed and implemented in a pilot phase in 2017, early 2017, um, and, and where we're at in terms of reunifications?
0: Sure. As a matter of fact, in the very earliest days of the Trump administration, you know, they started talking about this. This was something that um, operators you know, sort of frontline uh, officials within the immigration enforcement system had considered during the Obama administration and never obviously um, carried through with because it was stopped at the very highest levels of the Obama administration.
1: But it went and pretty so, far, right? Oh, in it the did. Obama it sure administration.
0: Did it. Jay Johnson, Cecilia Munoz, I mean, these were top officials with the ear of President Obama. I mean, they met in the Situation Room about this, and it was dismissed out of hand. Jay Johnson told me, you know, I just couldn't do that, um, despite the fact that some of these operators that carried over into the Trump administration were saying it would deter people from coming in the midst of a surge of unaccompanied uh, migrant children and families coming to the country. But, you know, obviously, uh, the Obama administration didn't do this. The Trump administration did this in a way that no one had ever conceived of at this scale before without the consequences, you know, with the consequences no one had ever uh, seen before. And to answer your question, at first we thought it was 2,800 or so, and that was the number that was given to us sort of in the heart of zero tolerance, that period from spring into summer uh, 2018. But as the ACLU investigated and the government was made to turn over records in this court case, we learned that there were additional thousand plus separated before Zero tolerance was officially put into place. And since the ACLU contends, there have been more than 1,000. So the numbers approaching is over 5,000 children taken from their parents by the Trump administration. And with regard to how many had been reunited, that initial first batch, most of those children had been put together with their parents, not without extraordinary challenges. 400 of the parents were deported without their children to their home countries. Um, but for the children before, Uh, that's an ongoing process. And that is because the record keeping uh, with this policy was so shoddy. And in fact, in many cases, it was non-existent insofar as the systems of the different agencies of government responsible for caring for separated parents and children did not speak to one another. And and you said there was no plan. There wasn't a plan to reunite. I mean, it wasn't sort of the, the stated goal of why they went forward with this policy. And what I've since learned and talk a lot about in the book is that you know, i used to say that a lot too but what what i think i would i would revise amend now in sort of the way that i look back at it is it wasn't that there wasn't a plan there was a, a furious effort to put one into place so that these records and these systems did speak with each other by career officials who had the best interests of the children at heart it was the political operatives within the trump administration that forced this policy through um, basically ignoring those warnings warnings that you know foreshadowed this trauma that these children are now facing
1: And uh, I want to talk more with you about how that all happened. And, And yes, you do highlight some people who really did try to fight back or at least mitigate the damage that they could tell would happen as a result of this. But I just remember during the course of this that that reporters like yourself and others who you know, immigration attorneys and others who are advocating for the families and for reunification said that there would be a percentage of children who would never see their parents again. Do you believe that to be the case?
0: Well, we can never say for sure forever, but we know that there are parents who were deported and chose as a small number to, um, to not have their child repatriated with them, ultimately. And that means that that child is either with a Family member or another so-called sponsor deemed appropriate by the U.S. government uh, here in the interior of the United States. So, unfortunately, yeah, they, it's it's not a um, it's not a large number comparative to the to the overall number. But the answer is yes.
1: We're talking with Jacob Soboroff, correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC and author of Separated, Inside an American Tragedy. We're talking about the Trump administration's family separation policies and practices from 2017 as well as 2018 and the status of U.S. border policy toward migrant children and families. Today, you can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. What are your questions for Jacob Soboroff about how the U.S.'s zero-tolerance family separation policy came about and what is happening now? Stay with us for more Forum. I'm Mina Kim. you're listening to Forum. We're talking with Jacob Soboroff, correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC. He's written a new book called Separated Inside an American Tragedy, talking about the Trump administration's family separation policies and its practices. And Jacob Soboroff, so your book begins with you talking about going to Casa Padre, that facility in Texas. Can you remind us what you saw there? That was June of 2018, by the way.
0: Yeah, June 13th, 2018. I will never forget it for the rest of my life, um, it was a 250,000 square foot former Walmart, as a matter of fact, that had been been converted into um, what was ostensibly a shelter for unaccompanied uh, refugee children who came to this country by themselves. But by the time I walked in uh, that evening with nine other journalists who had been invited by the government to see the conditions that separated children were being held in, uh, it was literally overflowing. There was a variance for um, an additional bed in every single room. There were four beds per room. Uh, Initially, there were five by the time I walked in. Uh, Hundreds of the children, I think maybe around 400 children were there for no other reason than they were taken from their parents um, systematically when they arrived at the Southwest border. And in this case, in the Rio Grande Valley, in South Texas, and I walked around. One of the first things uh, an official there said to me was, uh, "Please smile at the children. They feel like animals in cages um, being looked at." And the irony was, there were no cages in this particular facility, despite the fact that that was sort of the topic of conversation uh, in the media after Jeff Merkley tried to get into that facility uh, just a couple of days prior. And and what I saw, you know, was just extraordinarily shocking children watching movies, the, the movie Moana specifically in the former loading dock, doing Tai Chi, um, lining up uh, hundreds at a time in the cafeteria, murals with words from former presidents and President Trump um, painted along the wall. Um, you know, I, wa- I walked out and said what I said to you, that I had been inside, and I was talking to Chris Hayes live on our air on MSNBC, um, i have been inside um, a state prison uh, up north by where you are. Uh, I'd been in um, county jails in different places around the country, and and these kids were supposedly in the shelter, but to me they were locked up and there was no question about it. And it wasn't until actually three or four days later on Father's Day 2018 when I did see children in cages at the McAllen mm-hmm. um, Ursula Border Patrol Central Processing Station, and that's where we all got um, the images uh, from the tour I was on, as a matter of fact, of kids under the Mylar blankets, on concrete floors, uh, supervised by security contractors in a watchtower, and that's that was the epicenter of family separations, according to uh, Katie Waldman, who's now Katie Miller, Stephen Miller's wife, but then was the spokesperson for the Department of Homeland Security.
1: Right, and and you wondered then, because these boys were ten to seventeen year olds, um, if where were the zero to ten year olds hoping right. that there wouldn't be? And then, of course, we started to see the images of the toddlers and and the babies and the wailing and and the things that really launched a massive public outcry that caused President Trump to to cave and uh, to sign an executive order in June of uh, 2018, saying that he would no longer separate families. But I guess one of the things that is really shocking about the decision that was made was that you show that administration officials we're very aware of um, the the impact potentially of this on families on children, but also the fact that it was potentially a violation of the Constitution. Can you talk about how you realized this and yet they made that decision anyway
0: yeah i mean and i I certainly didn't know this in real time, and that's exactly why I wanted to write the book. I saw what I saw and the nation saw what what I saw and other reporters saw. Um, But I was left, just like the family I write about, um, with questions about how this possibly could have happened in the United States of America. It's why I called the book, as a matter of fact, Separated Inside an American Tragedy, because that's exactly what this was. I mean, it was perpetrated upon these children and their parents um, by our own government. And if this was happening in another nation, we'd all be up in arms, you know, talking about going into these countries and saving these children. Um, couple things on the constitutional aspect of this: Kirsten Nielsen still to this day denies that there was a family separation policy, which is a an, an extraordinary feat of, ger, of verbal gymnastics, as the most general, a generous way I can describe it. Um, she signed the policy into existence, and she signed the policy into existence. Option three was the option she chose, and it was recommended to her by her subordinates. The memo's in the book. After receiving an attached memo, which is, as you alluded to, had never been uh, published before, um, from John Mitnick, the general counsel of the Department of Homeland Security, who warned that family separations would not just violate, potentially, the Administrative Procedures Act, um, the uh, INA, the immigration laws of the country, but also the due process rights Of migrants coming to this country under the united states constitution and that that may be the most shocking warning i think that was sort of um, sounded and received by key officials in this but there were also smaller ones commander jonathan white of the u.s public health service commission corps who was for a time the head of the office of refugee resettlement warned not only his subordinates but key officials in the Department of Homeland Security, Kevin McAleenan, for instance, who became the secretary of Homeland Security, but was the head of Customs and Border Protection at the time, that separating families was gonna create massive overcrowding, potentially require five times uh, as many beds uh, as the children who were ultimately separated before the policy um, was stopped. And, And these are public health officials that know about the impacts of separation of trauma, On children, and that's sort of what I was talking about before. That these officials received these warnings, and decided nevertheless to move forward with this policy because of what I think universally is acknowledged to be immense pressure from from the White House and from Stephen Miller. You know, so much so, you know, they liked this policy so much that even after the policy ended, I write in the epilogue about how uh, Donald Trump, President Trump, uh, talked with Kirsten Nielsen about restarting this policy while aboard Marine One while, and this is not an exaggeration, on the way to console victims of a tornado in Alabama. I mean, these were people who had family members and relatives who had died, and Trump was thinking about restarting the family separation policy. And that's even after he saw the practical impacts of what this did to children.
1: Well, David writes, was this, what this administration did was evil, but my question is, was it criminal? Will people be held accountable for this and criminally prosecuted? I hope.
0: I often ask myself the same question. And, and you know, obviously I don't know. We've seen several um, investigations by inspectors general from the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, but those are not investigations to determine uh, the illegality of particular behavior. At least, you know, that's not the intent when they set out um, with those investigations. I, I quote a, a, uh, an official from um, the Office of Refugee Resettlement who would say out loud, um, they're going to The Hague, the International Criminal Court, and I'm not going to testify for them. But as of right now, uh, you know that certainly doesn't look like it's going to happen. There have been no criminal investigations opened into the perpetrators of family separation um, by the Department of Justice. And in fact, the Department of Justice was heavily involved in separating families. It wouldn't have happened were it not for Jeff Sessions' zero tolerance policy, which overlapped with the decision made by by Kirsten Nielsen. So, you know, at the very least, I think we'll be waiting until the next administration to answer that question. Um, but I will say, yeah, I have been, I have seen a complaint submitted to the International Criminal Court by, by a concerned everyday citizen who forwarded it to me. I mean, this is a question I get asked all the time.
1: Well, let me thank David for the question. And again, if you want to ask questions of Jacob Soboroff, you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or by emailing forum at kqed.org. You can also call 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Well, certainly the the negligence in terms of the record-keeping is pretty astounding in your book. I mean, I think at one point you write that they realized that they literally, between Health and Human Services, which was taking care of the children, and the Department of Homeland Security, which had the parents, that they actually had initially, before they improved the systems, they had only linked like one half of 1% of the kids with the parents. I mean, can you just talk about the record keeping?
0: It was a tiny, tiny fraction, and this was actually warned um, before, warned of before in the Obama administration. When uh, you know, on a very piecemeal basis, there were children taken from their parents for, in the interest of safety and security of the child, if the parent was was truly, um, you know, a violent criminal or presented a danger to the child. And Jim De La Cruz, uh, I have an email from him in the book. He was a, a social worker, basically at the Office of Refugee Resettlement, and said the best way. and I'm paraphrasing here, but the best way to make sure that children are reunited with their parents is to not separate them in the first place. And that is because the system to track parents and children virtually didn't exist. And there's one story in the book um, that I think really illustrates what a mess this was. When uh, in April of 2018, Caitlin Dickerson, who I already mentioned from the New York Times, published the number 700 as the number of children who had been uh, taken away Um, from their parents separated by the administration up until that point the first instinct of scott lloyd who was then the director of the office of refugee resettlement a trump appointee was not to call homeland security to work out how to reunite Um, it wasn't to improve record keeping his first instinct was to get rid of the list and he subsequently confirmed that since the books come out saying he did briefly consider getting rid of the list because he was shocked that it leaked and this wasn't some sort of official list this was a list kept by the same gentleman i mentioned jim de la cruz in order to just have some kind of backstop that would keep track of the parents and kids and it's a bit technical but the explanation is there were three agencies uh, hhs health and human services ice immigration and customs enforcement and cbp customs and border protection that all had different roles in the family separation Um, basically practice, and none of those systems spoke to each other with regard to um, putting parents and children back together because they weren't designed to do that. And so the only backstop was this list that HHS was keeping, Um, and and I guess the fact that they didn't speak to each other is made all the more um, extraordinary by the fact that the man responsible for the children, Lloyd, wanted to get rid of the list. When, when presented with hundreds of children that were you know, without, their, without their parents.
1: And this is how you make the point that using family separations, taking children from their parents as a deterrence mechanism by itself is already horrendous. But to be so negligent in the process, you were talking about how it boggles the mind that the cruelty was so deep, that the cruelty was the point of this policy.
0: Yeah. And credit to Adam Serwer, who, you know, who wrote that amazing Atlantic piece about the fact that the cruelty was the point um, at the height of all this. I mean, you know, I saw it with my own eyes and, you know, I, <laughs> like I said earlier, I know you're supposed to be I'm supposed to be an objective journalist, so-called objective journalist, you know, going out to see children in cages and I guess come out and describe that in some neutral um, way. I'm just not sure, at least for me, it wasn't humanly possible. Um,
1: and or I if that's even how. accurate to some extent, right? Yeah, I mean, to be an uh, accurate exactly. journalist.
0: Exactly. And I, I, what was I supposed to say? they were, there, uh, there, fences like you would see at a baseball backstop. I mean, I just didn't know what else to say. Right. And, and so did I get a little blowback for that? Sure. But I think that the, the point is nobody with a mor- any type of moral compass, any kind of compassion, we were all children at one point, if we don't have children of our own. Um, could tolerate seeing children treated in this way, and that's that's actually why, uh, Mina, I picked um, Juan and Jose, the father and son that are in this book, because their story is a little more complicated. Um, you know, I ultimately met Juan when he was on the verge of being deported without Jose. He had been um, coerced into signing away the right to reunification. Um, but their story isn't really your perfect "quote unquote" perfect. Um, border crossing immigrant story. He had crossed twice before and he would cross for work. But when he was threatened by narco violence, he brought his son, declared asylum, um, and was one of the th- 5,000 plus families separated and tortured, in the words of Physicians for Human Rights. And I guess what I'm trying to get to is it doesn't really matter who you are or what you've done or how many times you've crossed or the manner in which you did. Um, the issue at hand here is we're discussing the torture, what experts say is torture, of children. Um, by the U.S. government. And I really think there's only one way to look at that.
1: There's this, um, as I said, there are a lot of internal documents in your book, and there is this incident report that you have as well uh, from a child from Guatemala. And the synopsis is, Minor reported that he was separated from his aunt and a six-year-old cousin. Minor reports that he developed suicidal ideations while detained after the separations. Ideations are active with no plan, no intent, and no HX or no history. And then what you realize when you read this report is that the child is five years old. And so to think about the kind of effect that we have had potentially long term. The other thing that I was really struck by, and, and you've done some of this just now, Jacob Soboroff, is that you write... Just about your own experience as a journalist. I mean, you talk about how you were preparing to see the kids in Casa Padre. You went to go buy a Gatorade and some dry shampoo because you were, uh, you know, a TV person and you had to be on TV soon. it's
0: <laughs> true. And I had to admit it.
1: It was this sense of how even you, as somebody who had been covering the border and following these things, really had no idea what you were about to face and and the extent of what you would soon learn uh this country had done and you know it makes me wonder how reporting on this and that whole experience has changed you as a journalist
0: yeah it has Um, it's why i think that there it's why i think that the criticism um or I guess the suggestion that maybe I'm not the right person to have covered this story is a fair one Um, because I wasn't prepared to see this. um, But I did just happen to be the guy who who was there. And the reality is my in my brain covering the Trump administration and covering the border was covering whether or not we needed the wall, whether or not drugs were coming across at legal or illegal of points of entry whether or not trump was right about how many ms 13 members were coming into this country and i sort of missed i didn't sort of i did miss the lead up the family separation i was working on an hour-long dateline documentary about the border and it wasn't going to include um family separations it's why i was spending so much time at the border and why i found myself with the access to enter these um with the access to enter these facilities and credit by the way to people like my colleague julia Ainsley or Lomi Creel at the Houston Chronicle, now at ProPublica, or Caitlin Dickerson at the Times, who, who did cover this extensively, did see this coming. Immigration activists and NGOs who had warned about this potentially coming um, for years, even in back into the Obama administration. And what, what I've learned from this, um, a couple things, but most importantly, that the reason that this was able to happen was because of our decades-long system built by Democrats and Republicans. Um, What the Clinton administration did in 94 with prevention through deterrence, the official Border Patrol strategy, the expansion uh, of the Border Patrol by the Bush administration after the creation of DHS, the Obama administration deporting more people ever than any other administration. I mean, the immigration enforcement system was built up to a point where this was the um, natural is not the right word. Uh, the The next step, I mean, the most cruel next step they could take in order to scare people away. And I didn't see it coming. I should have seen it coming. But I wanted to be honest about that in the book so that people who were in the same position that I was um, could perhaps have something to, to relate to and, and 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 maybe understand this better when we get to the next phase of whatever this is
1: mm. Jacob Soberoff is a correspondent for NBC News. And MSNBC were talking about his book, Separated Inside an American Tragedy, about the Trump administration's family separation policy. We'll have more with Sobroff after the break, and with you, our listeners. So stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. And welcome back to Forum. Again, we're talking with Jacob Soboroff of NBC News and MSNBC. Give us a call with your questions about the U.S.'s zero-tolerance family separation policy, how it came about, who allowed its execution, how the U.S. is treating migrant children at the border now. That number, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Our email address, forum at kqed.org, and we're at KQED forum on Twitter and Facebook. This listener writes, how much federal money is being used to undo the separations and reunite children with their families in addition to all of the irreversible damage done to so many lives. It also seems like an example of incredible fiscal irresponsibility. Jacob Soboroff?
0: An extraordinary amount of money. And frankly, I don't actually know the the total, but what I do know is thousands and thousands of of human hours have been spent trying to track down uh, and reunite the over 5,400 children who were taken away from their parents. And I'm not talking about simply sitting at the computer and looking through records. We're talking about, and this has been well documented actually by my colleague, Antonia Hilton, who uh, is now at NBC News, but was previously at Vice, unreachable parents and parents where they could literally could not track them down, get them to pick up the phone. uh, And you have NGOs on the ground in Central America going door to door looking for separated parents. And that's work that's continuing to this day.
1: And uh, in terms of this question from this listener about how to help undo some of the damage. Uh, I learned just the other day that uh, that in November that there was a requirement that the federal government provide mental health counseling um, yes. as a result of a judge's ruling. And to at least those, you know, 2,000 plus parents that that we know of between the time that the zero tolerance policy was implemented and then it was reversed with the executive order from May uh, to July. And so that amounted to some 2,300 parents. I'm hearing that only 55 or so have, have received the counts.
0: Is that unbelievable? You know, it's that, that's tech. Uh, the, I think the case is miss JP is the ruling. Um, and um, I was just talking actually the other day to a, Uh, a woman who works in this immigration um, activism space and she sent me the flyer for how people can who were separated from the trump administration can actually get access to these counseling sessions and i sent it to juan and jose uh the the father and son in the book and i had asked him if he knew anything about this i mean obviously there's one thing that's particularly terrifying which we've seen play out with all kinds of government services policing etc you know, these are undocumented families in the United States. And I think that there's a lot of fear that getting back in touch with the government in some way that separated you from your child is going to have some other disastrous, disastrous effect. Um, the government won't know um, who who these parents and children are. This is done through a third party healthcare care provider. Um, but it, it is it is um, it is so sad. It's not just sad. It's horrifying to think about the trauma that the parents and the children are living with um, and not accessing, uh, you know, uh, counsel or these doctors, these mental health professionals that are able to hopefully work with them through some of these issues that were caused by the Trump administration.
1: Well, let me go to caller Wes in Oakland. Hi, Wes.
0: Hi, I have two comments. The first is that I'm actually sort of grateful that our government hasn't been keeping track of the immigrants quite the same way that that the threat that's the French and the Nazis kept track of Jews in northeastern France in 1940. On the other hand, what we're doing is despicable. I did have a question, though. Uh, I read a lot about QAnon and Pizzagate, and wonder if that's an entirely diversionary tactic to take attention away from the 5,000 people, children, who have been separated from their parents. It seems like it's a. a the timing seems to go quite in hand with this um, this horrible event that happened, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that.
1: Hmm. Wes, thanks. Jacob Sobrov, any thoughts on that relationship?
0: I do. Thanks, Wes. Look, I think that the on the one hand, the Trump administration will try anything they can to divert attention away from what they did to these children. You'll remember that Trump's first meeting with Kim Jong-un was around the same time of the family separation, the height of the family separation crisis. On the other hand, I truly believe that the Trump administration, Stephen Miller, his now wife, Katie and Mar- I mean, they want people to see. And Katie said this to me explicitly, and I write about what she said in the book, um, that they did this because they wanted Congress to see it and they wanted to force Congress uh, to make decisions based on the horrors of what family separation um, would cause these families to endure. They wanted to use the policy and the practice as sort of a widget to force these underlying changes to the immigration enforcement system so, Wes, I think it's a little of both, honestly.
1: Well, let me thank Wes for the question. Bruce writes, can you discuss how private prisons' profit motive played a role in these detentions? I mean, we we're also learning a lot about private prisons' role right now related to detaining people and just the inability to test and you know, make, contain the coronavirus within these facilities. We're hearing about that um, situation in Bakersfield. But, uh, but it's true, so many of these facilities were both – were either federal or um, private. Um, Can you respond to Bruce's question?
0: Across the country. Across the country, the vast majority of the detention centers used by ICE, including for families with children, are owned by private corporations. And they're paid, if I'm not mistaken, by the amount of beds that they have for these migrants in these um, facilities. And, you know, I've spoken with um, at least one migrant held in a facility who was held in a facility in Arizona at the height of the coronavirus there. And that was sort of the the underlying theory amongst migrants, which obviously ICE disputes, the GEO Group, which was holding this particular migrant private prison company also disputes, um, that the profit motive is the reason that they were keeping um, anyone, for that matter, locked up during the coronavirus epidemic. And and where I was in Atalanta, where um, Juan spent months separated from jose um where later the inspector general of the homeland security department found nooses and cells i saw with my own eyes um a man curled up in the fetal position on the floor obviously suffering from mental um, distress it's owned and operated by the geo group i mean these are private companies throughout the nation with a profit motive that are detaining immigrants coming here in many cases simply to seek asylum which is their international right
1: Cecile in Berkeley. Join us. Hi, Cecile. Thank you for uh, taking my call. I just wanted to thank the reporter uh, so much because I am so tired of hearing the neutrality on cases where I'm looking for at least 20 new words for outrage. Uh, And I feel that I'm finally getting a human being telling the story versus some anonymous human being that has and and I don't mean to mention names, but I heard Je- Jeffrey Tubin on his new book, and it was so kind of clever and they're chatting and so forth. I feel so inappropriate when uh, the news hour and all and and PBS, frankly, is not doing their job. It's not neutral. It is evil. <laughs> so thank you so much. Well, Cecile, thank you. I don't know if you wanted to respond to Cecile Jacob.
0: Sure. I'll do quickly. Um, Cecile, thank you. You know, it's why I say maybe I wasn't the right person to tell this story. I'm not a Washington DC insider reporter. I'm not a beat reporter for immigration. By the way, there are so many tremendous immigration beat reporters out there. They will all eat my lunch when it comes to, you know, breaking stories, getting scoops on this stuff. I just reacted the only way I knew how as, as a, as a father of young kids, um and as someone who was seeing this for the first time um i think there are a lot of other reporters frankly that would react the same i just happened to be in this position and it was the only thing um that i knew how to do and, and that's why i did it so thank you
1: and let me go to kathleen and martinez hi kathleen
0: Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for your work and for this program. Could you please explain to me why criminal charges are not brought
1: against these individuals who actually implement or do these illegal orders? To me, it is such kidnapping. I bring in a pair of shoes and to get them repaired, and I get a receipt. No, one of these parents got a receipt for one of their children so they can't be matched up. seems absolutely
0: criminal to me. Um, anyway, thank
1: you. Yeah. Kathleen, thank you. Thank you.
0: Kathleen, what I'll say is, uh, you know, I I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but in terms of criminal charges, I do want to say there have certainly, you know, over the course of the past, I I mean, even this year, I just saw a couple days ago, uh, border agents charged with crimes uh, by the US government. This one in particular was for um, being a part of a narco trafficking operation. This, you know, we've seen... And by the way, I've met many good Border Patrol agents. I met Border Patrol agents during family separation who told me they were strained and struggling and stressed and they didn't like what they were seeing with their own eyes. But we've also seen the Facebook groups with the racist, misogynistic, xenophobic language from Border Patrol agents. Uh, and so, you know, there are whether you want to call it bad apples or a whole bad bunch, whatever you want to say. I mean, there are there are there are agents uh, in both the Border Patrol and CDP, other agencies who have met with criminal charges for issues. We just not have have not seen them yet. Uh, on family separation.
1: Well, Norman asks, how can we make this right? How can we reunite and compensate these families? I mean, I think it's also almost what Kathleen is getting to and other people who've asked about the accountability piece of all of this. But how do we make this right? What are your thoughts for Norman?
0: Well, I mean, it's a very, very difficult conversation to have. What do you do to someone who was irreparably traumatized by the U.S. government? It's a conversation that we have Around slavery, it's a conversation we've had around Japanese internment. Um, it's a conversation we've had around Native American genocide. It's a conversation we must have around family separation. And I think this access to mental health care is one start, um, but I don't see how that could possibly be uh, the end of it. You've got um, ten, you know, thousands, thousands, just five thousand children, right? Five thousand four hundred children, thousands, maybe twice as many parents um, that are going through this. And the government um, at this point has only offered mental health care because they've been compelled to do so by the government, by the courts, I should say.
1: By the courts. Yes. And Namiko writes, choosing to leave one's country of origin behind along with our language, culture and families isn't an easy choice and fair to say not warranted of this attack against humanity and our basic human values, regardless of legal status. Jacob, Soberoff, you touched on this earlier, but in and how, you know, decades before so many administrations, Democrat and Republican alike, have really embraced this deterrence policy, this prevention through deterrence in terms of immigration what do you think needs to be reimagined here with regard to how we address migrants and immigration to this country?
0: Well, deterrence very, very obviously does not work. It In No More Deaths is the organization in Arizona that hands out water bottles in the desert for migrants crossing, and they're the ones that told me um, this analogy. You know, deterrence or walls or any sort of attempt to prevent migrants from coming here is is like a balloon. If you squeeze it in one place, you know, you see that the air goes to another. Um, Desperate migrants, refugees, seeking, um, in in most cases, to save their own lives, um, are not going to be stopped by harsh policies at our southwest border. I've been to Guatemala, um, where I went to the departments of Chiquimula and Zacapa, and I saw there how climate change climate variability el nino has created uh, just an unbelievable drought that has decimated uh the cash crop there, coffee and people are literally starving to death um there's extreme poverty malnutrition and people don't want to leave when you ask why are you leaving they almost always say they'd like to stay but they have no other choice and so when the trump administration for instance defunded aid that would help ex- uh, mitigate the issues that i saw myself That seems to me, you know, I'm not a policymaker or an expert, but that seems to me to be the exact opposite way to go about things.
1: Well, let me go to Mariana in Berkeley. Hi, Mariana.
0: Hey there. Uh, My question is, why aren't we talking about the fact that the United States is the only country in the entire world that has not ratified the Convention on the uh, Rights of the Child, and which would evidently prohibit all of this detention and um, malfeasance against children. So why aren't we bringing that up? This is an international law.
1: Thank you for bringing it up. Jacob Soboroff.
0: Well, I think that that's now on the plate of a potential Biden administration. And I think a lot of people are looking very closely at Joe Biden and Senator Harris about how they're going to approach immigration differently. I can tell you right now, there are not a lot of fans in the immigration activist community of the Obama-Biden administration, not only because of the deportations, but because the Obama administration built the facilities with the cages that I saw the separated children in. They they certainly didn't separate the children and place them into those cages, but they're the ones that built those detention centers. They're the ones that pursued family detention centers in the United States uh, of America. And so at this point, And Molly O'Toole from the L.A. Times, uh, to give her a shout out, wrote a great article this morning um, that I was reading about how the Biden administration, if there is one, is not only faced with undoing what the Trump administration did, um, but figuring out how to fix a system that was very broken uh, during Vice President Biden's time in office.
1: And how to, as we were talking about last week with uh, climate change, where migration could bring tens of millions more people in the next 50 years or so to our borders, how we also figure out a way to to maybe rethink uh, our policies at the border. Because as you say, it's not like if you you know, squeeze it at one end that the problem goes away. This listener writes about the future of DHS. Recent reporting that DHS's craters are fed up with its mission these days is making me wonder about the future of DHS. Uh, your thoughts on the Department of Homeland Security and whether or not Jacob Soboroff, you know, it... It might need some some serious rethinking or even to be done away with as Some people have suggested, Tom Ridge in particular, who was the first DHS secretary under George W. Bush, said, quote, that the president has perverted the mission of DHS.
0: I saw that. Um, And, you know, listeners should note that the Department of Homeland Security is by far the largest law enforcement agency in the United States of America. And I found it very interesting that during the primary election, there was A lot of talk on the democratic side and the mainstream of the party about whether it was defunding ice or abolishing ice or um you know taking away beds from detention centers i mean that was a mainstream conversation but again i guess the question becomes what now now that joe biden is the is the nominee that kamala harris is the vice presidential nominee um where do they go they had they certainly had disagreements over immigration policy during the primary um and you know frankly that's that's up for I maybe in the next couple of days we will be hearing more about that because you know the argument is that this is a department that's too big it's too unwieldy um there is too much cruelty within it just inherently by the way that it operates um for it to be humane moving forward and and now it's it really is on the Democrats um, plate to come up with a an alternative
1: what are you hoping the impact of the book will be I mean you do talk a lot about and even in this conversation about how you kind of found yourself in this situation and realized that this story needed to be told in the way that you felt you could and with the connections and networks that you had uh, based on the fact that you were perceived to uh, be able to handle this story in quote unquote a neutral way. I mean, what what are you hoping it will do?
0: That That it never happens again. I hope the book, you know, opens people's eyes to how we got to this point, certainly researching it opened my eyes Um, and it's the same reason that juan and jose wanted to participate in the book they didn't understand how this country that when they stepped foot in san luis arizona after jumping over a short border wall in san luis rio colorado in mexico um how it could have done this to them and that's what i've now come to understand that this is the system was set up to do this and all it took was a donald trump push it to that level that nobody thought it would ever get to. And so I hope that when, you know, readers go through the book, they'll now understand that this shouldn't have been surprising, and it won't be.
1: And it certainly filled a lot of gaps for me in my own understanding of what happened, which at the time was just so confusing. And I really do appreciate, Jacob Soboroff, how much you do credit the reporting of so many people in your book. The book is Separated, Inside an American Tragedy. Jacob Soboroth, NBC News and MSNBC correspondent. Thanks so much for coming on Forum. Thanks, Mina. And thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. Susan Britton produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening.